Championship we held the fire back. Yes. Um, that's actually an interesting question. Uh, let's see where we can go with it. First off, uh, you can understand that the uh, the five aggregates are actually part of the Tichu Samuppada. Mm-hmm. All of the five aggregates are actually mentioned in the Tichu Samuppada, but that the five aggregates are generally kind of an introduction to the teachings of the teacher Sambhupada. And also that you know that the teacher Sambhupada uh, is a full explanation of the second noble truth. Hmm. So uh, the teacher Sambhupada and the five aggregates fit within the context of what is the cause of suffering and that um, uh, one of the things that we understand about uh, the Four Noble Truths is that that's, that's the essence or the heart of the Buddha's teaching. And in fact, um, in one of the sutras, he says, both formally and now, I only teach one thing, <laughs> and that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Well, that, that phrase, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, uh, actually, you could say Dukkha is the first noble truth, Dukkha Naroda is the third noble truth, and the second and the fourth noble truths go into the picture. Okay. okay. Because if we can understand the cause of suffering, then we can, or Dukkha, then we can actually understand Dukkha. Um, and so the second noble truth winds up being very important as to the cause of dukkha, because if, if we interrupt that cause, then there's no dukkha. And so we wind up in the third noble truth. And that's in fact something that needs to be investigated as well as the other elements of the four noble truths. So basically, what we're coming down to is is that the five aggregates are subject to investigation. That's where it comes into practice. The practice is is to investigate. To investigate, is this suffering? To investigate what's going on here that causes this stuff. The investigation would be then to find what it's like to be out of suffering, because most people don't even know what that is. And so we should spend a, a little bit of time with that. Um, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa talks about a void mind, but he makes uh, the point that we're not in hindrances all the time that uh, many people, when they study Buddhism, they, and they talk about the hindrances and getting the hindrances out of the mind, many students get the idea that the mind has got nothing but hindrances. But that's not true. It wasn't true when we were little kids, and it's not true today. When we were little kids, many little kids, three, four-year-olds, 
they're delighted most of the time. Like to play with their toys and draw pictures on the wall and uh, enjoy doing things. It's only when the adults come by and and uh, disapprove and bring their own grown-up bad feelings into the situation that the kids wind up starting the habits of feeling bad. And so when we're really young kids, we can say that maybe 70 to 80% of the time the child is spent in joy and, and less than half of the time they're spent in uh, misery, unhappy, throwing tantrums, uh, pouting, telling lies, that kind of stuff. But it's really easy to see how the child gets flipped by an adult. Imagine that little Johnny is, is uh, taking his crayons, full set of crayons, all colors, and he draws a little picture on the wall. And then he draws some more picture, and it winds up being a piece of art. And then mom comes in. What's mom going to say about him drawing on the wall? Well, she's going to freak out. And she's going to have all of her bad feelings. And what he remembers as a childhood about the art is some bad feelings. Mom could, in fact, understand that, yeah, it's not right for him to be drawing on this wall, and someday we're going to have to paint it. We don't have to paint it right now. We don't have to get angry right now. We can come in and say to little Johnny, my, what a beautiful piece of art you've done there. Maybe we could get him a paint set. He could be a Picasso or a Rembrandt. <laughs> But when he is being fussed at, now he loses that. So uh, the way that the human is, is made up about our instincts, the self-preservation instinct, or the baseline of our instincts, that which keeps us alive, um, is motivated by fear. And so what happens is, is that people get into the habit of bad feelings and fear and whatnot, because he became afraid when mom was angry with him when he was drawing on the wall. So over time, time builds up, we have enough bad memories over time that we wind up feeling bad most of the time, say 70 or 80% of the time in anxiety and only a little bit of time in joy and relaxation. But everybody has that. In fact, that's what the entire Hollywood industry is all about, is getting away from it all. Well, what are we getting actually away from is all of this stuff up here that we've been accumulating. That's what we're using to get away from it all. But there are other things other than entertainment that we can do that are wholesome. And one of the things that is one of the sutras, and when uh, the student pointed that out to me, and it was within the last year, it really made something click. And that is, is that the Dhamma, the discussion of the Dhamma, right now while we're working together with the Dhamma, this is wholesome. The Dhamma is wholesome. When you are talking about the Dhamma, thinking about the Dhamma, discussing the Dhamma with your friends, reading books on the Dhamma, mulling over the Dhamma, you are not in hindrance. <laughs> but it's also possible to be reading a book on the Dhamma and go back and forth between the Dhamma and hindrance to the point that we wind up in the hindrances and, 
and the eyes are on the on the Dhamma. <laughs> but it's yeah. the mind is not on it. The mind is stuck in the hindrance, is worried about what the Dhamma says and all kinds of things. So you can see that interaction of that interplay. Mm-hmm. Now the point that I'm making here is that the Dhamma itself is wholesome and the aggregates fit into the second noble truth and the four noble truths are the Dhamma. So the way that we're going to then understand the four noble truths and down to the aggregates all the way to Paticca Samapada is is that when we're thinking about that stuff correctly then we're, the mind is in a wholesome state. So it's got its reward and value right then and there. The next thing is, is that there is a sutta number two in the Majjhima Nikaya called the Sabha Asava Sutta. And the Sabha Asava Sutta uh, is actually the first 11 parts, uh, 11 verses in Bhikkhu Bodhi's versing system, uh, has to do with the first group of fetters. Sabha, the word Asapai actually here, generally means something like an outflow, um, a boil, a pox, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, in, in the sense that uh, like picking blackheads. Mm. We can't pick all the blackheads at once. We can only do one at a time. Mm. As we see it, as it arises, as it's there, then we can deal with it. So we look at the asava kind of like that, as opposed to fetters. Fetters are generally referred to uh, as, as bondage. Um, kilesa is the word yeah all right so we're looking at the relationship between kilesa and asava at this point now in this sutra the sabha asava it lists um the the first part of it is basically it's like this the whole sutra is set up uh that the first thing is uh the taints or the impurities or the pimples that are to be removed by seeing, by observation. The next group is um, asava that is to be removed by using. Another group of asava would be by avoiding. Okay, what do we mean by the asava by using would be the the four requisites. Just enough food, just enough shelter, just enough clothing, just enough food. We need to have some sort of foundation. And you could actually say that foundation is the poverty line. Below that level, the Dhamma practitioner is in poverty, which means he doesn't have the, the needed requisites to live an easy life. But once we have just the bare uh, minimum, an example of that would be the homeless 
that are pitching a tent on the streets of Los Angeles, along with three or four thousand other people pitching a tent for the homeless, that's inadequate shelter. But if he would take that tent, leave town, go off into the woods and pitch that tent, then it would be adequate shelter. So it has to do with the environment. But in fact, the tent um, out in the woods where there's um, no animals much and no predators, then the tent, all it needs is the protection from the rain. But in Los Angeles, it needs a whole lot more protection than just from the rain. Okay, so you've seen what we're talking about there. <coughs> the rec, uh, the answer about that is, um, let us say, dealt with by avoiding, then, would be avoiding people of ill repute, avoiding cesspools, avoiding thickets, avoiding going places that are dangerous. Okay, so this would be the, the way. So let's go back to this group about avoiding uh, or uh, coming out of Asava uh, by seeing, because this is the question that you're asking. That the Buddha talks about it in the sense of those things which are worthy of our attention and the things that are not worthy of our attention. And the kinds of things that are not worthy of our attention are the kinds of things that will take us into places that are unwholesome. And things that are worthy of attention are the kinds of things then that will take us into wholesome states. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. And so then uh, the Sutta mentions a few things that would be unwholesome because they don't go anywhere. One of those questions would be, who am I? What was the past? In other words, thinking about the past. What's the future going to be? How will I handle the future? What this will be like? So past and future and worrying about who am I and that kind of stuff, that's unwise attention. In other words, these are hindrances. And yet that's what the mind is kind of paying attention to. And many times we're paying attention to those things, not very strongly, kind of unwisely, as well as uh, not very well. <clears throat> In other words, we're not really paying attention to what the mind is doing. So then wise attention is then paying close attention to really what's going on in the here now. So the Buddha expresses it this way, that and the sutras are very interesting in the way that they express it is, is that when one is paying wise attention, then we can pay it in the sense of this, what's happening right now, this is suffering. This is the cause of suffering. This is what we're doing right now. This is what it's like to be free from suffering. And this is what it is uh, the path that leads to the end of suffering. Or a better word to use is method because the word path has an idea of a destination and uh, 
uh, like a highway or a parkway or a path or uh, uh, something like that. So it's better to look at it as a sense of a method because a method we can do right here. We don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> this is one's wise attention, which means that we investigate the Four Noble Truths and investigate especially this, uh, this April Noble Path in the sense of this is sati. This is right effort. This is right view. What is right view? This investigation that I'm doing. This is right um, um, attitude. What is my right attitude? The attitude, I can do this. I don't have to have the mind stuck in hindrances. I can come to this present moment. So digging down a little bit, we find that when we talk about what is the second noble truth, this is the cause of the second noble truth. Um, there is an interesting way to say it, and I imagine that many Buddhists who really understand the Dhamma would agree that basically dukkha is selfishness. That we become selfish. Uh, we want to cling to something that belongs to us when in fact if we would give it to someone else we would both be happier. Okay. An example of that is a motorcycle that's not being used. It's laying in the basement, under the house, getting dirty. The owner comes down and he looks at that motorcycle and he remembers it longingly and he says, I want to go for a ride. But it won't start. It hasn't been taken care of. So now he's got to go work on it and take care of it and get it ready to ride. And then he takes it out after some expense. And he rides it one time and he puts it back into the place where it was. Letting it get all dirty and not working anymore. And then his nephew comes by and says, Uncle, I really want that bike. Let me have that motorbike. Time for this issue of selfishness, right? Is the uncle going to be selfish and say no that's my bike and you can't have it and yet look at all the suffering he's got going on with that bike <laughs> but if he would give the bike to his nephew the nephew would enjoy the bike he'd get it all fixed up he'd ride all over the place enjoying his life and being grateful to his uncle while the uncle is free from that thing he doesn't have to worry about it anymore it's gone so this is a very, very clear example of selfishness is in fact causing dukkha. The uncle's selfishness is causing dukkha to both of them. But you can ex you can see that and extract that one all over the place. All right. So what the teaching of the Buddha then is in five in regard to the five aggregates is to understand that that selfishness that arises in the mind of the uncle does not come from the five aggregates themselves. There is no self in the aggregates. Okay, so let's list them all quickly. 
We have the body, the feelings, we have consciousness, perception, and sankara. Those are normally the way that they're uh, taught. And if you look at it, you can say, wait a minute, that's slightly different order than the way that they're presented in Paticca Samapada, where you have ignorance first and then sankara, and only in digging down into sankara do you ever find the body. Then you have consciousness and perception, but perception there is referred to as nama rupa. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so nama rupa and perception are the same thing. So now that we've got them listed, let's look at each one of them in turn. The first one to look at, the one that's easiest to understand, and yet the one that causes so much confusion in our society is, is that I am not the body. You are not that body. Whoever you are or whatever you are, you're not that body. Why? Because you really can't control it. Yeah, you can take it to the gym. You can feed it and starve it and do that kind of stuff. But those, all, those are all kind of mechanical things. If you really owned it and it was really your body, then you can have your nose six feet long if you wanted to. You could be an old man today and a young man tomorrow and a, and a beautiful girl the next day. You can be whatever you wanted to be if that body was truly yours. Okay. You could almost think of it as rental property rather than... Uh, uh, own property. Okay. That you really don't own it. The reality is even land, ownership of land is just a mental construct. No one actually can own land. That land was there before you were born and it's going to be there after you're dead and you can piddle and play with that land all you want to while you're alive. Build a Trump Tower if you want to. When you're dead, it don't belong to you. <laughs> And so it never really did. And not only that, but that Trump Tower over time, if nobody else comes in and claims and owns it, nature will claim it and own it. Okay, so all of our ownership is really temporary. It's a temporary construction that things don't belong to us permanently. That when you were a kid, you wanted to be older. Older people want to be younger. They want their body to be changed and, ma and uh, managed, and we can't. But look at all we do in failed attempts to do that. You could go so far as to say that business is really based upon that. The clothing industry. Everybody sees their own body as a fixer-upper. And we try to fix it up with clothing. Many people will wear, wear makeup. Uh, we go through a beautification process because we're really not satisfied with the body. It really doesn't belong to us anyway. When you come to understand that you are not the body, that's a remarkable conclusion. Very few people understand that they are, in fact, not the body. Most people think they are. 
that in fact the cosmetic industry is founded upon the delusion. Yeah. Sorry, Demerado, but I have to go very, very shortly. Oh, you got to go, huh? Yeah. We were just getting started. Okay. Yeah, it, I know. Let's take another minute or two and uh, finish off that all five aggregates okay. are not you. You yeah. are not the feelings. People will say, I am angry, but they are not angry. But <laughs> anger is there. Mm. <laughs> but they are not the anger. That's an important point to know. You are not the body and you Hello, are not angry. angry. You're on the, also not all of your memories. Mm. You're not all of your past. That's not who you are. That one can, can, let us say, move out of one country into another, and slowly over time, they will forget all about the country that they came from. And so, uh, who we are and what is defined as um, memory, memory fades. Memory is also a construction. So that sometimes when we remember something, we, we remember a constructed reality. Yeah. Not the actual thing. An example of that was there was a, uh, a pecan tree in my grandfather's yard. And okay. I profoundly remember him planting that tree. And my mother was insistent that that tree was planted before you were born. And you couldn't possibly have remembered planting that tree. Constructed reality. Who constructed it? My mom or me? More than likely, I was the one who constructed it because I'm trying to bring up a childhood memory. Okay. So in that regard, our memories are faulty. Yeah. The way that we look at things, the way we perceive things in, is built on that faulty memory. So that we don't recognize things correctly. Because of faulty memory. That whole recognition process is also just a process of the mind. It's not me. One, one more thing that I was thinking about, because I couldn't really pin this down. Um, and I think it, it relates to the meaning of aggregates in that um, you can't really pin any anyone down, any one aggregate down because they're all a part of each other or they're all um, dependent upon each other. So you can't say oh, that is feelings because the feelings are dependent on uh, on form, for example. But oh, form okay. is also an aggregate. Right. So the chemicals that give us rise to the feelings, those chemicals are physical. They're part mm. of the body, and yet that's the source of the feelings. Where is feelings? It'll be in the neck if you're really angry. It'll be in the chest if you're uh, afraid. If you're uh, sad and feel lost, it'll be in the stomach. So <laughs> the feelings are associated with the body, as you say, and yet either neither the body nor those feelings in nor the reaction between them is the self. Yeah. Okay, then I've really got to go. I've got to teach in two minutes. So. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you later. We'll finish yeah. this at another yeah. time. Try to talk another time. Bye-bye, Demerito. Have a nice day.